Today we, uh, we come to the final two chapters in Acts, Acts 27 and 28. We've reached the conclusion of our Up, In and Out series, but it clearly doesn't end here. In fact, you could say, and some might be familiar with this thought, that Acts 29, which you won't find in your Bible, still needs to be considered and taken seriously by every single church and every follower of Jesus Christ. And I think I'm right in saying that Marcus and Jenny are part of an Acts 29 church in Australia. Uh, and so I'm going to come back to this whole idea of what, does, what is it about Acts 29? Because as I say, you will not find it in our Bibles. But as we get to the end of this series, let me ask you a question. It's a question we asked right at the beginning. It's a question we've been asking the whole way through this series, and it's this. How is your relationship in each of these three directions. How is your relationship with God this morning? How is your relationship with one another, with other brothers and sisters in Christ? And how is your relationship with your neighbor, with your friends, with your colleagues, with the strangers beyond these walls? Right? from week one, which was back on the 8th of February, we described this triangle as a kind of helpful and visual diagram of discipleship that reminds us to seek, to fulfill, and to pursue what it means to live out the great commandment, what it means to love God and love others. And as we come to the end of Acts for now, I hope this diagram will kind of act as a framework that will prompt you, continually prompt you to think about your relationships in all these three directions. Those little cards that we got produced for this series, there's still a pile of them left. And let me, let me recommend or encourage you to do something as you leave this morning. If you didn't take one, take one. If you did take one, take another one. And then what I want to encourage you to do is find some time, either this afternoon or in the next week, to write a prayer of reflection or intention regarding your relationships in these three directions. That's just a wee practical thought to take away. But what I want to do this morning is complete our journey with Paul towards Rome in these final two chapters. A fortnight ago, if you were here, Bishop Harold Miller looked at Paul's encounter with King Agrippa and his sister Bernice in Caesarea, and Harold reflected on how Paul told his story and how he shared his faith and witnessed for Jesus in a very rational way, very measured way, very reasoned way, right to the point where it says Agrippa was almost persuaded to become a Christian, but not quite. And at the end of that trial, Agrippa didn't think that Paul deserved death, didn't think Paul deserved to be locked up, but because Paul had previously appealed to Caesar, Agrippa decided to send him packing towards Italy. Now, Paul wanted to go to Rome, or rather, and this is the kind of key thing I want to say this morning, and this is significant. God had told Paul back in Acts 23, just as you've been a witness for me in Jerusalem, you, Paul, are going to go and testify and preach the gospel concerning me in Rome. And what 
God says, he does. What God says happens, despite the fact that it looks highly unlikely at times. Paul, as we're going to discover a little later, does get to Rome, does preach the gospel in Rome. But the number of things that happened from chapter 23 through to chapter 28 to suggest he's never getting there. The number of times it seems that God's word is going to be proved nonsense. That what God had said looked like standing little or no chance of coming true. The number of times that happened in these closing chapters in Acts was incredible. And I want to illustrate this and I want to say thank you to James Greenwood for highlighting this to me and pointing it out. So let me just share this with you. Here is what God said in Acts 23:11 to Paul. Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, one verse later, Acts 23, 12, 40 men bound themselves with an oath to not eat or drink until they killed Paul. But it didn't happen. Paul is then transferred to Caesarea, and as we have discovered, he endures three trials Surely one of them is going to do real Paul. One of them is going to nullify God's word and promise. But no. The first trial is before Felix, and as you know, it ends in a two-year lockdown. 24 months stuck, waiting. Is God's promise ever going to come true? Then at the start of chapter 25, we read how the Jewish leaders asked Festus, to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they wanted to ambush and kill him. Doesn't happen. Trial number two takes place before Festus, but there's no final conclusion reached. Trial number three takes place between, before Agrippa. That ends in no satisfactory outcome. And so, yes, Paul is sent packing to Italy. So maybe, just maybe, the word of God is going to come true. God is going to deliver on his promises. But then... En route to Italy, huge storm, shipwreck. Surely that's it. Then the soldiers who were accompanying the prisoners to Italy decided to kill all the prisoners so none of them would escape. But that doesn't happen. Then a snake bites, a poisonous, venomous snake bites Paul. But he doesn't die. And then we read in Acts 28, verse 14, and so we come to Rome. What God says, he does. What God promises comes true, even though there are times, lots of times, whenever, do you know something? We wonder. Whenever it looks unlikely, whenever it seems that things are getting in the way, will get in the way, and yet to echo Numbers 23, does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? You see, we can, we must take God at his word. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is dependable. And there will be moments when we don't get it. There will be moments when we don't understand. There will be times when we doubt God, when we despair regarding God's word. But God will still deliver in his time. 
The issue for us and the issue for Paul is this. Trust. Do, I mean, do we trust God to deliver on his promises? Do we trust God just to echo Stephen's prayer that one day justice will be done? I mean, many of us do watch our news screens and we, we're left reeling. Do we believe that one day justice is going to be done? Do we have confidence in God's word despite the questions, the apparent obstacles and the distractions? What God says he does. Paul's story confirms that. And so will ours. Let me encourage each of us to lean into the promises of God. To find comfort and hope in them because rest assured, they will come true. But remember, in God's time, some of us may be locked down for years, waiting, frustrated, disillusioned, wondering. Does God speak and then not act? Does God promise and then not fulfill each of us has to answer that question. But let's track Paul's final journey and tease us out a little bit further. If you have a Bible, that wasn't the end of the sermon. If you have a Bible, uh, you want to turn to Acts 27, nor is this the start of the sermon either. Okay, don't worry, we're halfway through. Uh, please turn to Acts 27. It's, it's page 1124 where we find Paul and the number of prisoners plus their minders, their guardians, on board a ship bound for Italy. In the initial few days, I'm not going to read any of this. There's two huge chapters there. I'm going to kind of tell the story. So please, if you want to follow it, do follow it. But the initial few days at sea are tricky enough. Difficult headwinds slow them down. And lo, yes, they did make some progress. It was tough going. And Paul was clearly concerned about the deteriorating conditions, and so he warned the ship's officers about the imminent danger, but those ship's officers decided, Paul, what are you talking about? We're going to ignore you. We're far more experienced. We know what we're doing here. Do you just sit there and shut up? Which turned out to be disastrous because as they sailed on, a wind of hurricane proportions in the Bible describes it. It had a name. It was called the Northeaster. It hits them hard, it rages for days and days, and it says that the, the, the crew threw cargo overboard. They even decided to throw some of the ship's equipment overboard. But eventually, everyone gives up all hope of survival. Everyone is convinced they're going to die. And Paul then calls the crew together and he speaks. And he explains how he told the ship's officers that this was going to happen. And they chose to ignore him. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, I told you so. Paul then shares how during the night, he received a visit from an angel of God. Who told him, Paul, you will stand before Caesar. And... Everyone who's on board this ship will survive. 
And so Paul's message and his advice to the crew and the passengers on this ship is simple. It's this. Take courage. That's it. It's kind of stunning. It's simple. But under the circumstances, it's complete madness. But look at why Paul could say this with such confidence. Look at verses 24 and 25 of Acts 27. It's going to be on the screen. Don't be afraid, Paul. You will surely stand before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, is what Paul says to the crew. For I believe God. It will be just as he said. And then if you are looking at the text, you'll notice he also adds, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. Do you know, there's no record in Acts 27 of how everybody responded. You can only imagine. And the ship eventually hits a sandbar. It runs aground. It's then smashed to pieces by the pounding surf. And the soldiers, as I said earlier, momentarily think about killing all the prisoners. Why? To prevent them from escaping. But the centurion, who's kind of responsible for Paul, he wants to spare Paul's life, and he stops the rest of the soldiers from carrying out their plan. And as it turns out, and if you scan down, you'll see that all 276 who are on board this ship either swim or float to land on pieces or planks of the ship. Here's the point. Paul was right. Everybody lived. Or more importantly, what God said would happen did happen. God's specific promise came true. There were moments, yes, as the ship is being ripped apart, as the soldiers are threatening to kill the prisoners. It all looks like God's word, God's promises are going to be proved wrong. But God has spoken. God has made a promise. And as we've already stressed, what God says, he does. And the question, and I suppose the challenge for us, as it was for Paul, is this. Can we this morning, can we with all integrity say, I believe God? It will. Don't know when. Don't know how. But it will be just as he said. Or in the NIV, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he's told me. And you know, as a church and as Christians, we, we have a passionate belief that God still speaks to us via his word. That God continues to tell us what will happen and offers promises that will remain, remain relevant to our lives. And like Paul, we need to affirm our faith in God and trust that God will deliver on what he has said. And so, for example, here's just a few examples. God has said, surely I'm with you always right to the very end. Do we believe that? God has said that what he has started in each one of us, he will see through to completion. Do we believe that? Some of you are sitting here this morning and you have loved ones and people you care about who once walked with God. And whenever you hear a verse like, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, it throws you 
given your current circumstances. And some hearts are breaking here this morning. And some people are questioning God. Do we believe? God has said that man is destined once to die and then to face judgment. Do we actually believe that? And we could go on and on, but the point is this. Do we have faith that these things will happen as God has told us? Or have we lost confidence in God's word? Paul didn't, and it changed everything. It had a profound effect in his life. And if we retain and maintain that strong belief that what God says he does, that what God says will happen, it can have a profound impact on ours. But let me go back to this specific incident and highlight another potential lesson. Do you know, we, like Paul, have the privilege and the challenge to speak words of hope into difficult situations. But Paul, as he, like this was a horrendous situation that Paul found himself in, and that these prisoners found themselves in, 276 of them, staring death in the face, And Paul speaks words of hope into a bleak context. And you know, we today still have the pleasure and privilege and face the challenge to be agents of hope in a world that often seems dark and hopeless. Those passengers saw no future. Those passengers couldn't see beyond the immediate. But you see, whenever God is present, There is a tomorrow. A new day does dawn. Change is possible. Transformation is going to take place. In tough situations, Christians can become agents of hope as they sensitively and appropriately share God's word of life and offer fresh perspectives. Let us be agents of hope in a dark world. It turns out that the 276 survivors who do swim or float to land end up on the island of Malta. And as you read about what happens there in the first 14 verses of the final chapter, you discover an aspect of Paul's character that's sometimes missed. Paul is a strong leader, there's no doubt about that. He's a confident speaker, he's a willing and bold witness. He's not afraid to speak up, speak out in virtually any context. But although that's true, do you know something? Paul's also a servant. He may be great, but he's also humble and willing to serve. And we we see that here in his brief spell on Malta. Two things happen on this island that reveal that Paul's a humble servant. The first is that as these Maltese people set a fire to provide heat, I mean, these, these guys that have swam or floated to land are freezing. And so they go to set a fire, and we find Paul off gathering wood. He must have been exhausted. He must have been cold, yet he's prepared to roll his sleeves up up, and get involved in the simple and ordinary things of life. Another act of kindness that kind of exposes and reveals that Paul has a servant heart is that he visits the sick dad of one of the key islanders. 
And he doesn't just visit him, he prays for him and prays with him. And it says that this key islander's dad is cured. And then it turns out that everybody on the island who is suffering from some disease wants to see this miracle worker. And it appears that Paul prays with every single one of them. And they are healed. And I don't want to make too much of what might seem like a couple of rather incidental moments in a story. I don't want to place an emphasis somewhere where it's not to be placed But I do think these insights into Paul's servant heart are worth mentioning because they prove that despite all, all he's been through, despite what he was going through, despite what he was preparing to face in Rome, he still had time and made time for others. Paul had so much in his mind. He could have been forgiven for thinking about himself, thinking about his current circumstances, and yet here was someone who was living beyond themselves. We've talked about this before. Our calling to follow Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked, means we've got to live beyond ourselves. We have got to become humble servants who think of others first. And so in these final chapters, we see Paul as, willing, as a willing witness, as an agent of hope, and as a humble servant. And if you want to take away three descriptions of every Christian's life, there's three good ones. And Paul leaves Malta, and he's still a prisoner, and along with 275 others, he heads for his planned destination, or rather, he heads for his destiny. Take courage, Paul. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so they set sail again and head for that great city. And when they get there, we read, and I'm just condensing this all, when they get there, we read that Paul is able, somehow able to rent accommodation for two years. But according to verses 16 and 20 of the last chapter, he's under house arrest the whole time he's there. He not only has a Roman soldier permanently with him, but he also is constantly in chains. And from that place and under those conditions, he then fulfills his destiny. He does two key things, and they're spelt out in verses in verse 31, the final verse of Acts. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What's fascinating is that the story now ends. Which when you think about it, it's really odd. The whole point of Paul coming to Rome was to testify before Caesar. He had appealed to Caesar. And so surely some of us, hopefully, are left wondering, so, how did that go? What happened? And bizarrely, Dr. Luke, the author, doesn't tell us. There's no Acts chapter 29. Or is there? See, there's almost a sense here of an unfinished story. And maybe that's exactly the point, because an unfinished story leaves the reader facing a question, What are we going to do about this unfinished story? 
And therefore, part of why I believe Luke left it here is to remind us and to encourage us that the story continues. God is still writing his story through his followers. This that we are involved in is a living story. We are invited, if you like, to write Acts 29. How do we do that? How do we write Acts 29? How do we continue this story? Simple, by doing the two things that Paul did. We proclaim the kingdom of God. We teach about Jesus. Let's not complicate this. Sometimes, as Christians and as churches, we really complicate the Christian faith. We love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the great commandment. Up, in, we love our neighbor in here. Out, we love those beyond these walls. Then, how do we live? What do we say? What do we share? What do we do? We proclaim the kingdom of God. We proclaim God's rule and reign. The now but the not yet. The invisible being made visible. How do we do that? As willing witnesses, agents of hope, and humble servants. And if we can go from here as individuals and as a church and model up, in, and out, proclaim the kingdom of God and teach others about Jesus, be willing servants, be agents of hope, be humble servants, be willing witnesses, agents of hope, and humble servants. We will make a difference. We will see change. Because what God says, He does.